We uh, now have come to uh, the church that is called the Church at Thyatira. And we are um, we're on a journey. Actually, these churches that are listed there uh, in these seven churches, it's almost like a postal route. It would have been like a trade route and a route that they would have traveled uh, making their way from church to church and delivering. It's, it's real probable that each one of these churches received all of the letters. In other words, they would have read for the church here and here and here. All seven of those letters, they probably would have read them all. And they would have been passed around as time went on. As you can see, the church at Thyatira, as we have been giving a title to each one of these churches, this one is the corrupt church. Uh, we haven't so far really seen a whole lot of good when we've been looking at these letters, though there is good within it, within these churches. But when we think about really what the Lord had against them, this one has been tied entitled the corrupt church. You can see from the map that I've shown before where Thyatira is. It's uh, actually located about 45 miles southeast of Pergamos, the church that we were on last week. It's, it's actually today a modern city. Uh, Thyatira, there's really not much for me to show you. As I've shown you some pictures of some of the last churches, of some of the uh, archaeological finds where they've dug things up and said, gives you a good idea. This one, they didn't really find much. Uh, today, uh, that's the city name. Akashar uh, is the name of the city today. It's, it's got about maybe 80 to 100,000 people in this city today. Uh, it's even these are bad pictures. Not only do I not have much to show you, these are not even really great pictures, all I could find. But these are some pictures. Now, if you look at this one here, I mean, these are houses all around here. These are columns that have been sitting there for a couple thousand years that are in people's backyards. It's still there. And, and actually, the remnants of that city is still there. It's just that they've built the whole city over the top of it. So it's all there. But these are remnants, really, of, of some of the things that were there in the day of Thyatira. We, uh, not much really uh, is even known about this because nothing's written much about it. But Thyatira, what we do know is that it was a trade city. It was a, a city that actually had a bunch of trade guilds within it, people that would have different professions, uh, different artistries that were in this particular city. And, and some of those included uh, coppersmiths that were there and tanners and leather workers and... Uh, linen workers, and, and really one of the, probably the most uh, common trade that was there, and one of the guilds that was there, had to do with dye, had to do with dyeing wool, 
and making linens and wool that would have been used uh, really for people that were wealthy, uh, people that were of royal status, because this particular dye that was used there and, and used in Thyatira was this purple dye or this crimson red that was used really in the making of, of the Roman higher, their, their, their robes and things like that. It was really that same color of that robe that they put on, that scarlet robe that they laid on our Lord's back when he was arrested and when they were mocking him and beating him and they stuck, stuck that robe on his back, this scarlet robe. We know that Thyatira uh, was the place that Paul actually visited back there in Acts chapter 16 when he came into the city of Philippi actually and he met up with the lady Lydia. Well, we're told from scripture that Lydia was from Thyatira. She would have been probably one of the, the ladies that was part of one of the guilds there that actually made, and, uh, made this dye uh, that was commonly used in the day. It was, it's, it's actually, there's another picture actually of, of the remains. Uh, there's the mater root. The mater root was what was used to make this purple dye. And you can see that it was used for uh, some of the royal garments that were worn. As a matter of fact, the common person wasn't allowed to wear that color. That was exclusive for people that were in places of authority. And it was very expensive to, to buy. And so not a lot of people probably wore that color around on an everyday basis. We, um, we also know that in this city that they found inscriptions that revealed that this city had three gymnasiums in this city. It also had a, a colonnade of uh, a portico of a hundred columns that lined the street with the shops that went down the side. That's probably what these columns were uh, from is that colonnade of these hundred columns that lined the streets that were there. Again, uh, like Smyrna, Pergamus and Pergamus, Thyatira wasn't a city that uh, we really know how it got planted. It's very possible that through Lydia, because remember when Lydia got saved and it says that her whole household got saved, that they begged Paul and Silas and said, would you come and stay in our home? Well, it's real possible that, because it says that Paul and Silas were persuaded to do that, that maybe when they went, they, uh, maybe a house church began there in Lydia's home. We don't know that for sure. It could have been even a, a church that got planted out of also the, the school of Tyrannius there in Ephesus during Paul's time there. Uh, last Sunday, we looked at the church at Pergamos, which was the compromising church. This was uh, the period in history that the church, remember, was married to the state. It was during this time that the Roman Emperor Constantine declared Christianity to be the legal religion of the Roman Empire, and that he declared it to really to be the state religion. Well, really, that started kind of the downfall 
uh, really within the church because anytime you marry the church to the state, it's not a good thing. Anytime you get government involved in the church, it's, it's not something that goes very well. And it didn't then. It was really the downfall, really, of the church at the time. Uh, I also shared uh, last week that there appeared to be a chronological order of these seven churches. Now, as, you, as we go through these uh, seven letters, we're going to see that each one, each church, it, it seems as if it's progressively getting worse. And it's actually going to come to the last church of, Thyre, uh, of Laodicea, excuse me, that the Lord is going to say, if you're not hot or cold, if you're lukewarm, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Nothing good is said of that church. When we get into the next church, uh, next Sunday, we're going to see that that church is a dead church. And so you read these letters and you go, well, where, where's the good? Well, the Lord is trying to get the attention of these churches, like he's, I believe, wanting to get the attention of us, even this morning. I think that there's a real deception for us as Christians a lot of times, especially when we read about historical churches and historical events and things that somehow we can remove ourselves from them, that we don't put ourselves right in that same place. But you know what? Don't ever be deceived that God doesn't care about the purity in the church today. We, we, we talked about that in communion today. Joe read about this holiness, this purity that God requires of the church. God requires it in you as an individual. And it's a very deceptive thing to ourselves to think, you know what, God can't keep track of all the sins. He can't see it all. You know, I mean, everyone's sin, all the churches in the world, all of their sins and failures. And somehow we think that God doesn't see sometimes even the things in our own lives. Or that maybe doctrine is not that important to God. And as a matter of fact, doctrine is very important to, to God. Uh, as when people come into the church and bring a false teaching and false doctrine... God hates it. He hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans because of the effect that it has on the church. Here's another lie. When Christians start thinking that serving the Lord and doing good works will somehow make up for the unconfessed sin in our life. In other words, if I can do more good deeds for God, if I can do things within the church and be actively serving him, surely he'll bypass my unconfessed sin. And you know what? God doesn't. God sees our sin and he sees every, every good thing you do, but he sees every wrong thing that we do also. We need to know that Jesus is always more concerned about your walk with him than he is about your work. You see, we can get that backwards. We can think that God really wants from me my service, my ministry, what I do, 
And, you know, and if I'm actively working for him, he must be pleased. And you know what? God is really more pleased with our lives when we live holy lives unto him. When we, when we are most concerned with our own heart, even above our ministries. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew chapter 7. He said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me, and, and I'll make the emphasis upon many, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name. And the Lord's response is, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You know, that's going to be an eye-opening day, isn't it? You think of all the church, universal around the world. Remember, I've been talking about the seen church and the unseen church. The seen church is what we see over encompassing the whole world and not necessarily are all of those people true believers. But the unseen church is what God sees. He knows those who are his. He knows who's truly born again, who's really saved. He knows the true church. And it's going to be an eye-opening day. On that day when people have exhausted themselves in works, in the name of God, when they stand before God and God says, depart from me, for I never knew you. We have our historical prophetical timeline that I've been showing to you. You can see uh, where we're at here. Thyatira from 590 to 1517 A.D. That's the period that we are looking at from the historical, prophetical view. Yes, this was a real church in Asia Minor in the day when John was writing this letter, but it is also a picture of a period of church history. And we're going to look at that a little bit this morning. One of the things that I want you to notice, as you look at the dates of these particular churches, is that this church at Thyatira has a span of 900 plus years. That's a lot of church history. That's a lot of time that had elapsed. This period of history, a church history, has been referred to by some as the Papal Church. Now we know, at least from the Catholic Church anyway, we know that... Uh, that the Catholic Church actually traces back their popes all the way back to the Apostle Peter. I don't agree with them, but that's what they do. They take and say that Peter was the first pope of the Catholic Church. Well, they've had since Peter 266 popes to the current one today. You can see that whole list of all those. And in their mind, they believe they're the one true church. They started with the Apostle Peter, and they are the one true church. It was during, though, these 900 years, this span of time, that 
history refers to a period in the section of that 900 years uh, as the Dark Ages. Now, what are the Dark Ages? There's a lot of things that could be said about the Dark Ages, but here's one thing that was significant. It was during this period of time that the Papal Church took the Bible out of the hands of the common people. Now, what do you think happens when you do that? You marry a church to the state, you take the Bible out of the hands of the common people, and where do you think the church begins to go? Why do you think this church is called the corrupted church? Because when this happened and they took that out, there was a time in history where even under the Roman Catholic, they, they wouldn't even let the common people hold the Bible. It was only to be held by the priest. And as a matter of fact, they would only read it in Latin in the beginning days. And so the people that sat there that didn't speak Latin didn't even know what was being said. But what we have that came out of these dark ages is we have false doctrine. Uh, false doctrine began to creep into the church. Or like today. And we always have to bring it back to today. We can't just look at all the past. But what about today? What's happening with the word of God today in churches? How, are there churches today that are saying, you know what, the word of God is not that important. You people that just get into this whole thing of this verse by verse and taking people there, you know, it, it's not, people need more than the Bible. They need other kinds of things within church. People don't just come to hear the Bible taught. And I'll tell you what, that is commonly said today in lots of churches. And the ones that are not saying it are, are still putting the word of God second. And what happens when you do that? It opens up the door for false doctrine. When you take the word of God out of the hands of the people, the people stop really examining the things that are being said. I hope that every one of you has a Bible on your lap this morning. And that everything that I say and everything that I will say from this pulpit, that you look at it and you go, you know what? Yeah, okay, I see that. Or if you don't quite understand it, I'm going to look into that. And you examine, you become a good Berean. You check up on the things that I'm saying. Make sure that they're in the Word of God. It's important. Don't just take it because I say so. You need to see it for yourself. Within... Protestant Christianity. There's a term that's called sola scripture. And that term means this. It actually was a term that came during the Reformation period, but it means, and, uh, it means by definition, scripture alone. In other words, everything that we practice as Christians, every doctrine that we believe is found in the word of God. And if I don't find it in the word of God, then I don't practice it. If somebody comes along and says, hey, this is a new thing, that the Holy Spirit is just moving in our church, and he's showing us to, you know, to do this, and this is a new work of God. And those things come and go, and they have through history. That a good Berean and somebody that is a good student of the Word would say, you know what, I don't see that in God's Word. I'm not buying into that. Show me in God's Word that I'll practice. As a matter of fact, the Catholic Church... Uh, they disagree with sola scripture. 
They believe that it is scripture plus church tradition. And as a matter of fact, church tradition holds just as much weight as scripture itself. And a, and a pope has the uh, anointing by God, they say, to be able to bring forth new revelations and bring about new doctrine within the Catholic Church. Anything's up for grabs, whatever they would want to do. And you have people that are just being wrung around by the things that are being said. We look to the word of God as the measuring stick for truth and error. We know that there's a few, and I don't want to get into this too much, but we know that there's a number of false doctrines that came in during this period of time. I'll, I'll just give you a few. One of them is baptismal regeneration, that somebody actually gets saved through water baptism. Purgatory, an awaiting place that, uh, that people would go to uh, before either heaven or hell, but purgatory was that awaiting place. Not found in scripture, but taught as doctrine even within the Catholic Church. The worship of images and relics uh, was another, uh, that actually happened in 88 AD, where they began to bring in uh, different images within the church. Indulgences, confessionalism, transubstantiation, these are all terms that the Catholic Church has brought into church doctrine and tradition that the church practices today. Penance, worship of Mary, all of these things. The list goes on and on. Do you know that there are 1.2 billion Catholics in the world today, in a world that has 7 billion people? That's a lot of Catholics. Uh, are all Catholics not saved? I wouldn't say that. I would say that there are probably a lot of Catholics that are saved. But I believe that there are many and I believe many that have been deceived that don't know, really know Christ. It's a religion to them. It won't be until the Reformation, and we're going to see that in our next church, a period, another period in church history where Martin Luther came in and he put the 95 Thesis on the... I actually gave you a little picture of that. This is in Germany. This was the church that Martin Luther took that list of 95 things that he disagreed with the Catholic Church, and he went and he tacked that, he nailed it to the door of this church. And it was the beginning of what was called the Reformation period. And it was during that time that the church began to once again start reforming and coming back to sound doctrine once again, though it still had its problems. With all of that as a background, let's look at verse 18. Jesus says this. Remember, this is Jesus speaking to this church. And to the angel or the messenger or the pastor or the elder, we could put in there, of the church in Thyatira write. Now Thyatira by name just means this, sacrifice of labor. Think about all of the Mother Teresas. The, the people that have really given of themselves unconditionally and sacrificially 
to the cares of people and hurting people in the world. Sacrificial. But it makes you wonder, of all of those people and the Lord writing this to this church at Thyatira, the perfect example of this 900-year period, but even the sin that this church back in 95 AD was experiencing. Look what he says. He says, These things says the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. I think that's an appropriate part of his description of himself that he shares with the church at Thyatira. Remember that he is taking a section out of chapter 1 for each church, using that as a description, really, and I think a fitting description for each church. First, he says, these things says the Son of God, which is a title that points to Christ's deity, that he is God in flesh. His eyes like a flame of fire. We read in verse 14 of chapter 1, it tells us uh, that, well, let me, let me turn there. I don't have that. Verse 14, his head and his hair were like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like the flame of fire. And so when we read that description of Christ, what that speaks to us is it speaks about his ability to see the immorality, the immorality within the church, the compromise that's within the church, these piercing eyes like fire that's able to actually see the doctrine that is being taught there. I think a fitting description for this church. And not only does he see it, but he's also able to judge it. God will judge idolatry. God will judge immorality. God will will never wink at it. God can't. God can't in those churches. He can't in this church. And he can't in our own personal lives wink at sin. We're told that the church at Ephesus had many good works, but they had left their first love. Jesus was able to see that, wasn't he? They had a a good resume of works, but the Lord said, but you've left your first love. We read of the church at Pergamos. We're told that they were holding fast to his name and were not denying the faith, even under persecution, but there were some who were holding to the bad doctrine of Balaam and the Nicolaitans, and Jesus was able to see that also. He says, yes, I see your good works, but there are some in your fellowship that are holding to these false doctrines. He has feet like brass, we're told, which is that description or really that symbolizing of God's judgment. It was that brass serpent in the wilderness that Moses put up with the snake and said, if you look upon that serpent, that brass pole with the serpent, you'll live. And if you don't, you'll you'll perish. 
It speaks of God's judgment. Remember I shared about that brazen altar that the priest would walk into when he walked into the holy place. Before he even made it to the holies of holies, or the Ark of the Covenant, he had to lay that sacrifice upon the brazen altar. And that sacrifice was completely consumed by the fire, completely burned up. It was that picture in the mind of that priest and all the people that God's judgment, that God had to judge sin. What's interesting is that one of the guilds in this city of Thyatira was the art of fine brass. And so the feet of fine brass speaks of his judgment that's going to come really against a corrupt church. Verse 19, Jesus says, I know your works, Thyatira. I know your love, your service, your faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. I mean, I look at that, that's a long list. As a matter of fact, it's the longest list out of all the seven churches of him commending them for their good works. It's a commendable list. As a matter of fact, if if you didn't read further on in the letter and you just read those good works, you'd think, this church is all right. They're actually doing well. I can't see anything wrong with them. But the Lord sees beyond our good works, our exterior things that we do. Uh, The Lord is telling us even this morning, I see your works, but I also see your hearts. I see your compromise. I see your unconfessed sin. I see those things in your life that no one else can see. But I see it. Jesus tells them, he says, as for your works, the last are more than the first. As a matter of fact, they were actually progressing, unlike Ephesus, where they started out real good, but they left their first love. They weren't doing so well later. This church is doing more works and greater works as time goes on. But they're called the corrupt church. Jesus sees it all. And he doesn't let things go by. He doesn't add up all your good works and go, you're doing so well in this area. I'll let this one go. The Lord doesn't do that. Look what he says in verse 20. Nevertheless, whenever you see that word nevertheless, We don't like to see that word, actually. Nevertheless, he says, I have a few things against you because you allow the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. Nevertheless, I see. Jesus says, you allowed it. You allowed this woman Jezebel to come into your midst. You tolerated her in her doctrine and her teaching. You turned a blind eye to those things. And there are churches today that do that. 
They were allowing this teaching in their midst. Though they were doing good works, they were allowing this teaching to exist in the church. Remember, they weren't probably testing the things that were being said. As these doctrines of Jezebel were coming forth, there were some in the church that were allowing it and not testing it. That's not right. It's not in the word of God. They were allowing it is a key word for us to remember. You see, God is concerned with the teaching of bad doctrine. There is a lot of bad doctrine today. There is a lot of doctrine that does not line up with the word of God. And God hates bad doctrine. It is a big issue in the church today. Remember what Jesus said to the church at Ephesus in chapter 2, verse 2. He says, I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil. He's commending them for that. You don't put up with that, those evil doctrines. You have tested those who say they're apostles and they're not. He's commending them for doing that. He's not able to do that with the church at Thyatira. They weren't tested. They were allowing Jezebel to come in with this teaching and this false doctrine, corrupting the church. You know, if the church would have done, uh, if Thyatira would have done like what Ephesus had done, they would have had that list of works and then really just hated the deeds of Jezebel and her teaching and her doctrine. They would have come out as a church going, praise the Lord, this church did well. God didn't have anything bad to say against it. But they allowed it. And now after 500 years of church history, Jesus is saying to the church in Thyatira, you have allowed this woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess to teach and to seduce my servants. Married to the state, take the Bible out of the hands of the people, move down, keep moving down, and this 900-year period of history is probably the picture of Thyatira. We're not sure who Jezebel was if she was a real woman that lived in that city, uh, it's possible that she was. Some commentators uh, have said and believe that it was the pastor's wife. And I started thinking about that, and I thought, I'm not going there. <laughs> you know? But whoever Jezebel was, it, it could have been that she symbolized Jezebel in the Old Testament. And Jezebel was a very wicked woman. Everything, you know, everyone knows the name Jezebel. It's attached to everything wicked in this world. So if it's a, just a picture of this doctrine that was coming into the church, the doctrine, if you want to say, of Jezebel, that's possible. It could have been, though, an actual woman within the city that was there teaching and calling herself a prophetess. Now, one thing that's important to know is that nobody ever self-appoints themselves <coughs> as prophets. 
God says you're a prophet, that's the only way that you become a prophet in Scripture. God speaks through you as a prophet. You're not, there's no self-appointed prophets. The Mormon church tries to say differently, but that's what they believe. How many self-proclaimed prophets do we have today? A lot. If you want to just go on and do a little search, you'll find all kinds of people that claim to be prophets of God in our day and age. It wasn't uncommon then, and it's not uncommon today that people say that they are speaking on behalf of God. That's a dangerous place to be in unless you get it 100% right. Don't speak as a prophet or say that this is a prophecy from God. 1 John 4, 1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Jezebel came in to teach, to seduce, to commit sexual immorality, and to eat things sacrificed to idols. Jezebel was a Phoenician princess in the Old Testament. She was the wife of King Ahab, who was the king of the northern tribes of Israel. I went to a site. There's Jezebel, not a real picture of her. I went to this site on my trip to Israel. This is in the northern part of Israel. It's in an area called Tel Dan. And this is actually an altar that was unearthed that is a Baal worship site. Got a couple pictures of it. You can see this little uh, thing that they made here out of metal. That's simply put there so that you can see what the size and what that altar would have looked like when they made sacrifices to Baal. You see the horns? That's just a metal replica. I sat right there under the tree. But I've been to that spot. And in that area of Tel Dan. It's, it's a weird feeling even just being there. Knowing the sacrifices and the things and the wickedness that went on. Jezebel was behind that getting the people and seducing the people and getting them to start worshiping relics and idols. You know, the term fornication in the Bible, fornication is having sex outside of marriage. And fornication is also in Scripture in the spiritual sense. Physically, we can fornicate, but you can also fornicate spiritually. And what fornication is, is that when you take anything and you put it in the place of your relationship with Jesus Christ. God said to the children of Israel, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. You're not to make any graven images or likeness of things that are in heaven or things that are on the earth to bow down to them and to worship them. We know that 
we as a church are pictured as the bride of Christ. And I, I, I think for our Lord, <clears throat> that spiritual fornication is when we become unfaithful to him. You know, I want to be faithful, just, just like we're to be faithful in our marriages, husbands and wives. God wants us to be faithful to him in our relationship with him. I have another little... Those are some of the gods of Baal. <coughs> they could be that big. They could be sitting in all the homes there in Thyatira. They could be sitting in places, you know, throughout, you know. These were the Baal worship idols <coughs> that were constructed that Jezebel was promoting, the worship of Baal. But we know we have today images. If you've ever been to <clears throat> some countries that are predominantly of Catholic origin, you see them just lining the streets. We went to Malta, the island of Malta, and the streets were lined with these images everywhere you went. It's like 99% Roman Catholic there. You go into the buildings and they're like this, full of images and idols, and it, and, and it just goes on. That, to me, is really the sin of Jezebel. One commentator wrote this about the theology of Jezebel. Her theology, as it spread by her counterparts in the, the city of Thyatira, would be especially attractive in that members wrestled with the matter of participation in the workers' guilds. To reject the guild membership, or to, excuse me, to reject the guild membership would cause one to suffer economic deprivation. However, to be part of a guild required participation in its pagan religious festivities. The temptation to compromise one's Christian beliefs must have been strong for many of the churches. And so I believe, uh, thank you, Joe, um, I believe that the church at Thyatira, under this teaching of Jezebel, <clears throat> was causing the church, causing Christians, to be put into a position, if I want to work, if I want to be a part of this guild, it's the way they made their living in that city, then i then I got to compromise a little bit. And what was happening is it was filtering into the church, and they were allowing it because it was such a part of the culture of that city. They allowed it. <clears throat> Look at uh, verse 21 in your, in your Bibles. Jesus says, <clears throat> he says, I gave Jezebel time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. You know, and I, I read that and I think, you know, look how long-suffering our Lord is. Look how patient he is in our lives. I mean, things that I should have repented of long ago and God was patient with me as I was wrestling through this sin and these things in my life. God was patient. But you know what? There will come a time where God must deal. He must judge sin. 
whether you're a believer or not a believer. We can't come under the banner, oh, I'm a child of God, God would never hurt me. <coughs> God has to deal with sin. God is patient. He is slow to anger. And He even allows us time to repent. But we must repent. 1 Timothy 4.1 says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, and having their conscience seared with a hot iron. Do you know that in our own lives that we could allow sin and to be there for long enough and let it just play with it and be part of it, that we can actually begin to seal our own minds where it doesn't affect us anymore? It just has become part of my life. It's, you know, Christians aren't perfect. We're just forgiven. You know, and we start buying into the thing that, you know, God calls us to be holy. In verse 22, he says, Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. God's judgment must come. It will come. And that's why as we're going through the book of Revelation, we're going to see the judgment of God coming upon a Christ-rejecting world. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed. It's interesting that uh, the bed of, uh, of sexual immorality is a bed of pleasure. But here he's calling it a bed, a sickbed. That bed of pleasure is going to be turned into a sickbed. Speaking about God's judgment. And those who commit adultery with her and it wasn't everyone in the church in Thyatira that was. But those who do will be thrown into great tribulation, or some translations read, be thrown into great distress. I will kill her children, verse 23, with death. This is harsh <laughs> language. And, and I don't believe in this case here, it's probably talking about Jezebel's biological children, but it's talking about those who follow after her doctrine, her teachings, her immorality, who follow in her steps. I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your work. God searches the minds and the hearts. Are you able to see my heart and my mind? You're not, but God is. And God knows what's going on inside of me, and he knows what's going on inside of your heart and your mind. And those are the things that God will still judge. It's not just the outward things that people can see. Now Jesus gives some words of encouragement, and we're always happy for this. Look at verse 24. Now I say, <clears throat> now to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you 
no other burden. I think <clears throat> what's very gracious <clears throat> of our Lord is that he doesn't lump everybody into one thing. He's not saying that all the believers at Thyatira were corrupted and immoral and following after false doctrine. There were those faithful Christians within that body that were steadying on to the rest in Thyatira, to the faithful. He says in verse 25, to those faithful, but hold fast what you have till I come. Hold fast. Don't give up. When things are getting tough, when the world and, and all of the ungodliness in this world is crushing down on you, wanting you to conform to it, wanting you to compromise, wanting you to follow after this or that, don't give up. Don't give in to what, the, what they're telling you. Remain faithful. Keep resisting the evil that's around you. You find that hard? Living in this world, of all the temptations and all the things that surround us day in, day out, to keep yourself pure? Not easy, is it? It's difficult. We have minds, we think, we, we have a flesh that wants to compromise and to do things. You know, and hold fast. Keep saying no to sin. Keep saying no to bad doctrine. Hold true to those things that you know. In verse 26, he says, And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels. And as, as I also have received from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. Who is he that overcomes the world? If you believe that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior this morning, and you're born again, and you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are an overcomer. You have already overcome. Who is he that overcomes but he that believes that Jesus is the Christ? Remember, as believers, that it's not how we start, but it's how we finish that makes the difference. We can all start out with a real big bang as a Christian. Sold out, given everything up, and when we get to the end, what are we going to be? That's what's important. Revelation chapter 20, verse 6 tells us, Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over, the, over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. When he's talking about this uh, rule, ruling them with a rod of iron and dashing to pieces like the potter's vessels, I believe he's talking about the millennial kingdom that's coming. Remember that we are in the church age right now. There's coming a seven-year tribulation period that we're going to be getting into as we go further into the book. 
at the end of that seven-year period of time, there's going to come another time called the millennial reign of Christ. A thousand-year period where Christ is going to reign. And those who are faithful and those who have overcome are going to reign with Christ for a thousand years, and he is going to bless those that have remained faithful. 1 Corinthians 6.2 says, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? He's saying you have the ability to judge in this life, but there's coming a day and I believe in that millennial kingdom where God is going to, I don't know exactly how that's going to be, but he's going to allow us to participate in some way during that millennial reign. And I will give him the morning star. We have a number, a couple of verses for that. Revelation 22, 16, Jesus says this, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. 2 Peter 1.19 says, So we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in our hearts. Aren't you looking forward to that day where you're going to stand before the morning star, Jesus Christ himself, face to face, and the Lord is going to see you as his child, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, and you're going to enter in. I mean, the reality of that, the reality of that day should grip our hearts. It should, it, 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 we shouldn't be sitting here going, oh, I, I don't know about that day. <laughs> it, it, it shouldn't create a fear. It should really create a hope. It should cause me to go, Lord, I look forward to that day that I stand before you. The bright morning star. He closes and he says that he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He, he closes each one of the letters this way. And I believe it's not just a, like a fancy way to end the letter. He's telling us as a church, be obedient. Be obedient to the things. If you have an ear to hear, and you're really hearing and you're really listening, it's going to come out in obedience to the things that he just said to us. I know that as we go through these seven letters, there's a lot of things that get said that are really hard to hear. I mean, it's not like these letters are full of a lot of just, you know, great things to hear. But, you know, this is a time, I believe, for our church that there can be some purification going on in our church, in our lives. And you know what will happen if that happens? If that is happening? Is that God is going to use this church in even greater ways. Why? 
because I, it, this is what I, I want God to look down at Calvary Chapel Fellowship and see a body of believers here that are in love with him, that, that desire to follow him, live holy lives, be used of him, don't want to compromise life and things in life. We just want to have an impact on this world for Jesus Christ because he's coming back. That's what I want. I mean, I, I'm not here playing church. I'm here because I really believe what I'm reading in this book, what I'm sharing with you, that this day is really going to come to pass. It's reality to me, and I hope it is to you too. If you're here today and you need prayer, maybe it's a prayer of repentance that you didn't lift up before the Lord during our communion time that you knew you should, then come and come up and see me afterwards because I want to pray with you. And if it's something that you need to counsel, I want to talk with you. Kathy will too. But let's be here for one another. This is not a thing of judgmental. This is a thing of being an encouragement to one another. And that's what I want to do. And so let's, let's close in prayer. We're just going to end with prayer. Father, I, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the time of communion of just setting our hearts afresh upon you and what you've done for us, the time of worshiping you. Lord, because you are worthy of all of our worship. And Lord, I pray, Lord, that even now, Lord, as we lift up our lives before you and we, we see our need, Lord, for your power in our lives, I pray that even now, Lord, you would fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit. Empower us. Go before us today. Go before us this week. Let us be unashamed of our faith in you. And Lord, our prayer is that you would be pleased, Lord, in our lives and in this church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.